Welcome back to Bringing Light into Darkness. We now return to our interview with Dr. Alan Cooperman, who was explaining that the uprising in northeastern Libya was armed, militant, and was led by veterans of al-Qaeda, and this was the rebellion that the U.S.-led NATO forces were supporting. You know, so then the question is, well, did the U.S. government know this and lie about it, or did the U.S. government not know about it, or did some parts of the U.S. government know about it, but other parts uh, of the U.S. government not know about it? I personally can't believe, I don't believe that when President Obama decided to lead this intervention, that he, he knew he was supporting a rebellion that had been started by al-Qaeda. So I just think it's a huge screw-up. And my guess is that the intelligence community probably knew this. And there were people in the Obama administration who, you know, were the senior diplomatic officials. And they were reading the newspaper, and the newspaper was saying that this was a peaceful uprising, and Saddam yeah. was killing civilian protesters. And they told Obama, you got to do this. you got to stop a genocide. Yeah. Well, there was no genocide. So there was no genocide to stop. The intervention couldn't stop a genocide, didn't stop a genocide, because it wasn't happening. But what it did do was turn Libya from the richest country in, in Africa per capita to a total failed state basket case. And, and before, and let me interject with a question for you, because this question of whether Obama knew or didn't know, I don't even think is important. I think we have already know that in 2007, we had the intelligence that there was all sorts of al-Qaeda in northeastern Libya. The cities of Darna, Tobruk, and Benghazi had the vast majority of the foreign fighters that were sent to Iraq and also served as the very center from which the 2011 violent NATO-backed rebel uprising emanated from. Not just in Derna and Benghazi. Yeah, Derna, Beida, Be- Derna, Beida, and Benghazi are the three very big good. cities in East yeah, Libya. Thank you. So there is no doubt in my mind that our intelligence did not know that the armed rebellion that we were supporting in northeastern Libya was being led by al-Qaeda interests, the LIFG. And I'm just suggesting that if another country, let's say it was Russia, and there was proof that Putin didn't know about something, but his intelligence acted and did know, and there would be an accountability that needs to be exercised there. You know, that's not an excuse that, in my mind, when you have, just as you said, you know, when you translate the results of the invasion, it sounds really bad to take the, you know, the, the country with the highest development index. Now it's, the, you know, the worst place in Africa to live, or at least one of them to, 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 to live. But you're also talking about infant mortality rates. You're also talking about the acceleration uh, and consolidation of these jihadists so that they can wreak more and more damages and that type of thing. So, you know, I just wanted to take a pause there and say that, you know, I appreciate, you know, you're a scientist and you have not come across direct knowledge. I think people like Seymour Hirsch has also written very exclusively on other indications that article, The Red Line and The Rat Line, he talked about the Benghazi location. That was in 2012, right? One year after the 2011 deal that we lost, the American consulate got, got attacked. But he, in that article, was talking about how the CIA was running arms from Libya down to Syria. And many of those arms were going directly into the hands of other jihadists fighting, you know, as a, almost like a surrogate army, whether we knew it or not, for, for our 
foreign policy interests and such. So I guess in that type of environment, I mean, it is important to be careful not to claim what people knew and what they didn't know. Uh, but the results are so horrific that uh, when you see it kind of having common outcomes in different parts of the world, it's it makes it even more difficult, at least for me, to believe that there was not knowledge at, at higher levels than just the CIA as to the Al-Qaeda involvement. I don't know if you want to comment on that, or but that's, I guess, just really, really disturbing to me that well, we're, we're, we're talking about two slightly different time periods. And so, mm-hmm. surely, by the time period you're talking about, everybody knew that there were Islamists involved in the fight for power mm-hmm. in, in Libya. But I'm talking about before right there, uh, President okay. Obama right decided in March. to intervene. And, 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 yeah. and not just that there were a few Islamists who were kind of glomming on to a peaceful protest, but as, as I've documented that the uprising was led, initiated, mm-hmm. spearheaded by al-Qaeda veterans in eastern Libya. So, as I say, and, it's, and you know, we've talked before about the fact that all this stuff is classified, and the way that classified mm-hmm. information is handled under U.S. law is that it's kept classified for usually at least 30 years. So, in 2041, we'll get the documents that will tell us exactly who knew what and when, but I agree with you that, that the, the outcome was so horrible that it's, it's important before 2041 to figure out you know, how to right. screw this up, exactly. who knew what, when. And so in my 2019 article, I, I say, I'll, I'll read it to you. I say, quote, an inspector general needs to pinpoint the cause of this massive policy failure mm-hmm. so that steps can be taken to avoid any repetition, unquote. Mm-hmm. And that hasn't happened. And you know what's interesting is that one might have thought, since this was a screw-up under the Obama administration, that the Republicans, when they controlled a Congress, would have done investigations into this and say, well, how did Obama screw up this decision by deciding to go and intervene in Libya? And you know why they didn't do it? I don't. Because they they knew it, too. It because because the Republicans also supported the intervention into Libya. Well, right, right. And, so yeah, so they would be saying, if the Republicans sit in investigation, they would, they would have to also say, this is how the Republicans screwed up yeah, by supporting yeah. the intervention in Libya. So the result is you have two political parties that supported the intervention, and so neither political party is going to do the investigation of how this decision was made so stupidly. The result of that mm-hmm. is that the same procedures are still in place. So we're set up to make an equally stupid decision going down the road. Because unless you learn from your past mistakes, you are doomed to repeat them. Another area that I've studied extensively is Syria and the jihadist. You know, they're the spearhead of the, of, of the opposition, uh, military opposition, that is, almost from the very, very, very beginning as well. So you're right. If there's not accountability, then these things can get replicated in other parts of the world. It is interesting that the only bipartisan areas we have are on these foreign policy things that have such a devastating effect for third countries, and that's uh, disheartening. Listen, I want to remind folks that we are visiting with the distinguished Dr. Alan Cooperman from the University of Texas. Uh, He's written uh, currently and over the past 10 years on the Libyan invasion and overthrow of their government, the resulting human rights conditions that uh, have, have occurred as a consequence of those acts. When you were actually writing, I want to kind of go back because one of the things 
that I think is important is to learn from history. And, you know, we, we heard in, in Iraq that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction and that he was responsible for al-Qaeda attack in 9-11 and that he was harboring al-Qaeda. All of those things were demonstrably proven to be false. But yet a year or two after the invasion of Iraq, over 60%, I think it was 61% of the American public still believed in those falsehoods. In other words, there's this massive, for lack of a better word, propaganda that, that gets us so, that takes us away from the truth of the matter and kind of sanitizes some of these foreign policy initiatives. Because I'm no fan of Saddam Hussein, but it's striking to me that Iraq was one of the most advanced nations in that part of the world, and we turned it into over a million people died if you include the sanctions. And then the same type of issue in Libya, where we took an advanced nation and turned it into a a humanitarian, terrible situation. And I guess my question for you is when you were sitting there watching the claims and then you were coming across your research and doing your research and, and couldn't substantiate them, why wasn't there a bigger participation, do you believe, by, by our mainstream media in demanding this evidence? Because the same thing happened in this Russian bounty story. I don't know if you, how much you followed that, but you know, here you had the Russians being accused of paying bounties under the Trump administration. There was no evidence that was brought forward to that effect. In fact, Pentagon sources were quoted as denying that they had seen such evidence, that they could not confirm those reports. Yet it was a slam dunk matter of fact that the press, the more more liberal press that is, gave to those accusations without that evidence. And I'm just saying, at what point do we need to be demanding evidence after time and time again, whether it's Vietnam, whether it's Iraq, whether it's Libya, whether it's on and on and on, we find out later that the pretext was, was was a false one. So taking yourself back to that period where you were discovering the contradictions and the accusations, were you getting frustrated with people printing your, your understandings? And can you, can you share that experience with us? Sure. You know, it's interesting. People think of fake news as something that happens on the margins, like on Facebook or on Breitbart or, or something like that, whereas the mainstream news, well, those are the facts. Mm-hmm. And what you see in back at cases of events and reporting that, that led to military intervention that wound up backfiring because it was based on false premises, which, what you find is that it was the mainstream news <laughs> that got things wrong. Mm-hmm. So you, you correctly talk about 2011 Libya, you talk about 2003 Iraq, you can go back to 1999 in, in Kosovo. Mm-hmm. The same thing where there was a claim that right. there was a genocide occurring uh, by uh, Yugoslav forces against Albanian civilians. That's not what was happening prior to intervention. It was a civil war, and there was a rebellion, and the government was targeting rebels. And it was actually a very low-level civil war with a very low, relatively, level of casualties, most of whom were fighters, not civilians. And yet, that was reported falsely, and that led to a, a NATO military intervention for 11 weeks in 1999, and then the deployment of 50,000 forces to occupy this tiny little area. And our intervention provoked a massive escalation in that local civil war. The rate of killing went up, i documented, 30 times. Mm. So by a factor of 30, killing in the civil war was 30 times higher after our intervention than before our intervention. So, so this is a long-standing problem. 
do I get frustrated? I, I get very frustrated because I've been writing about this for over 20 years, and uh, we seem to be making the same mistakes. Specifically in the case of Libya in 2011, in February, before the NATO intervention, I looked at the evidence that was reported, and the media was claiming that there was massacres of civilians, and I could find no evidence of massacres of civilians. Right. I said to myself, it's, you know, you don't have to be the CIA to figure this out. I said to myself, <laughs> exactly. uh, if there are massacres of civilians, then there are lots of dead bodies. And there's social right. media, right, doctor? I mean, there's like social media everywhere. Have yeah. cell phones with right. cameras. Exactly. Even they don't have to be smartphones. They can just be cell phones. Right. And, and, right. And, and there was massive penetration of cell phones because Libya was such a rich country per capita. So everyone had cell phones. In fact, a lot of them had smartphones. And, I, and then I said, well, maybe, okay, then they would have to get the pictures out. So then I checked. Are, are people able to send SMSs from Libya? Yes. Do they have internet connectivity still, even though there's a uprising going on? Yes. I said to myself, okay, so if there are dead bodies, cell phones, and international connectivity, then there should be pictures in my <laughs> inbox of dead bodies. And there were none. Right. So I wrote an op-ed, and I said, this looks like classic rebel propaganda. They're claiming that the government is killing civilians because they want the United States to launch an intervention to help their rebellion overthrow the government. Where was that op-ed? And I sent it to newspaper after newspaper, and they wouldn't print it. The New York Times wouldn't print it. The Washington Post wouldn't print it. The Wall Street Journal wouldn't print it. Wow. Okay, and that's why it... It became later a very famous op-ed, and it showed up in the Boston Globe. The Boston Globe is a very, very good newspaper, but, you know, it doesn't have the widest circulation, so it wasn't my first choice. And so the fact that it showed up in the Boston Globe meant that it showed up after the intervention Chapter, was launched. Right, later in 2011? Uh, I, I think it's like a week. I think it's like a week uh, after. Wow. But, you know, you can, check, you can check on YouTube. I went on a local Austin television before the intervention. I made the exact same case. Uh -huh. I said the exact same thing. There is no evidence of the violence and the war crimes or crimes against humanity that supposedly would justify intervention. In the absence of that evidence, yeah. you know, why are we about to launch a major military intervention that's probably going to make things worse? I'm very proud of that interview. I think you should be, and I think you should be very proud of revealing the New York Times and the Washington Post as the war criminals. I mean, I don't use that lightly. I did not say that. I, 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 I said it. And, and, and because they don't print it. And they have a long history of not printing available information that contradicts the narrative to war. They did not print information that was contrary to the false narrative that led us to sanction and invade Iraq, in which millions of Iraqis died. They do not print contradictions to the narrative that has led to the ongoing war in Syria, in which hundreds of thousands have died. They refuse to print articles by Seymour Hirsch, Pulitzer Prize winning investigative journalist, the best that we have. Hirsch had to go to the London Book of Review to have his articles published on Syria. They do not cover Yemen in our role since 2015 when President Obama overtly supported the Saudi war on Yemen that has continued to this day, that has created the worst humanitarian disaster in the world today. And here in Libya, they do not cover the basic contradictions to the narrative that you, among others, so empirically and appropriately questioned. You are a scholar. You're not a 
you're a journalist too. But I, I think our mainstream media in particular, uh, you know, and of course there are scholars that, you know, follow the dollars as well, but you're a researcher and you don't have any kind of political bone to grind, so to speak. And this is, your work is hugely important in order for us to try to get at the truth of the matter and whether people want to believe it or not is one thing, but to, to deny you access to the American public by refusing to print it, it because it's contrary to this narrative that they were supporting. And that's why I'm saying at some point there has to become accountability and, and there has not been. So I think that's a fascinating story. Do you have any insights? This might not be your area of a particular expertise, but what do you see unfolding? You know, we're, we're running out of time, but I did want to ask you, from your studies of Libya, what you see unfolding in the coming uh, months and years towards a resolution and prospects for stabilized government. I know it does not look promising at all to me, but from I'm not nearly as informed as you are. What, what, what are your reflections there? Well, what's interesting is that the civil war heated up last year. As uh, I had mentioned earlier, that, that the country was largely split in two. A western half that was perceived as more Islamist, and then an eastern half that was perceived as more secular. And I say perceived because neither of these is a pure uh, designation or description. And uh, the eastern side went on a military offensive, and they were backed by foreign forces from Russia, from Egypt, and from the United Arab Emirates, and they made a lot of progress towards conquering the western side of the country, including the capital. And at that moment, Turkey intervened and provided oh, military assistance to the western side mm -hmm. of the country. And so this escalated the war and increased the death rate momentarily. But what happened is that eventually it came to essentially a deadlock. Turkey had defended the western side. Russia, UAE, and Egypt had defended the eastern side, so neither side could really conquer the other. And so that's got good and bad news. The good news is it meant the war came to a halt, because each side realized they couldn't conquer the other half. But you essentially have two countries, not one country. So how are you going to put that country back together? Mm -hmm. And that's what the ongoing negotiations are for. And they've actually made quite a bit of progress on paper. They're supposed to have elections at the end of this year. In the meantime, just in the last two weeks or so, they agreed on an initial agreement on a transitional government that would lead up to the elections. But that transitional government has not yet been approved. So that all sounds good. But the question is... How do you put these two halves of the country back together? Mm -hmm. They don't like each other. They don't trust each other. They are in some ways culturally distinct, and they are under the protection of opposing foreign military forces. So I think that the current situation is decently good for avoiding war, but is not very good for putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. And until you can put the country back together again, then it's not going to thrive economically. You're not going to get back to that high quality of living for Africa that they had had. And you are not going to be able to have a unified security system of military and police. And so what that means is you're going to continue to have this problem of hundreds and hundreds of militias in the country. That problem was created by the U.S.-led intervention in 2011. And since then, you've had this kind of anarchy of hundreds and hundreds of separate militia groups, including the militia that went and killed 
the U.S. ambassador in, in 2012. Until you can unify the country, you are not going to have, you know, what Max Weber famously said. Sorry, I'm an academic, so I'll quote Max Weber, that you have to have a, the, the definition of a state is having the monopoly on the legitimate use of force. So we're not, we're not talking about abusive use of force, the legitimate, just like we have laws and police and courts and so forth, and they're run by the government. And unfortunately, that's not the way Libya works right now. Mm-hmm. Every neighborhood has its own militia, and you've got to pay them a bribe in order to have your business operate or in order to use a road and so forth. And that is not a recipe for order, for, for stability, for economic growth, for human rights, for all the things that you would want Libya to have. So the silver lining is that there's not war right now because there's this military stalemate. But mm-hmm. beyond that, Libya has a, a, a long way to go. And, and we should not ever forget, I've said it a lot, but we should not ever forget that Libya is in this horrible situation because of an intervention that happened because the U.S. decided to launch it. Yeah, we are responsible for all of these negative outcomes in Libya. And I'm not against all use of military force by any stretch of the imagination. But this was a really, really misguided use of military force that, that, that created harm not just for Libya, not just for Libya's neighbors, but for us, for our European allies. You talked about the human trafficking that goes through, has gone through Libya over the last 10 years. You talked about this renewed slave trade. Look at all the huge influx of immigrants that are attempting to go from Africa to Europe, and you know what happens. They drown in the Mediterranean by the dozens or hundreds. Right. All of that is the consequence of a U.S.-led military intervention. So we should think hard before we launch the next one. Very good. Well, listen, I would just like to add that you have a country, Libya, in 2011, that was trying to help unite the African continent. Not to overstate that, but here you've just described the internal irreconcilable conflict that's going on there, at least for the near future. And this is what happens with these military interventions, is it seems like too often when you look at how we intervene, the result is these unstable types of situations in which compared to the quality of life for the majority population under the government before the intervention, the quality of life for the majority population has massively declined. When you really have strong nationalism or ways in which these countries try to circle their wagons to try to allow investment capital, I mean, that's fine, but not to be taken to the woodshed with the amount of resources and profiteering that goes on from over-appropriating their resources without proper compensation. So I think when you have people in a movement towards restricting that type of investment return, that that, to me, ultimately will be shown to be the greatest motivator for the very, very ill-conceived intervention that resulted in, in a certain way, mission is accomplished. You know, Africa is no closer to, to, to protecting its own resources from these neo-colonialist type of situations than it was uh, than back then and such. So listen, I wanted to ask you, we're just about out of time, but I wanted folks to be able to access your articles that did the art uh, responsibility to protect foster violence in Libya was one of them in 2019. You mentioned a op-ed in the Boston Globe. There's also the Americans' Little Known Mission to Support Al-Qaeda's Role in Libya that you also authored in August of 19. If people are interested in accessing your work and analysis, how would you suggest they can access that? 
Well, it's, it's really easy. It's just my last name, uh, which is Cooperman with a K. It's basically like you spell Superman, but with a K instead of an S. <laughs> so just, just, just go to www.cooperman.com, and you'll get a link. You'll get to my website, and almost all my articles are, are listed there, and many, many of them have hot links. So you can just click on them uh, and get them. Well, listen, I want to thank you so much for your example, your leadership, and pursuing the truth as you you know, uh, sometimes we don't get at the truth, but it's the honest pursuit of truth. And, and your research is, I was going through a couple of these articles is you're a, an excellent and very in-depth researcher. So there's a lot of resources connected to your work that I think people might find of interest if their interest is to, uh, you know, get at the truth with uh, these, these issues. So Dr. Koopman, thank you so much. Well, well you know, Pedro, you know, we, we don't, we may not agree on everything, but I think we both have the same mission of uh, bringing light into darkness. Very good. And it's really neat to have you here in Austin, Texas. Again, for people that are not familiar, you were the light. I, I can remember in 2011 reading a quote well before I ever even realized you were at the University of Texas. Scholars throughout the world were citing your research. Their comments were not getting published <laughs> as well. So uh, anyhow. Thank you so much for bringing light into darkness. Thank you very much. Until next time. Please stay tuned for our local music mix that comes up next. To our listening public, thank you for joining us once again. Please email any questions, comments, or interest to pgatos00 at gmail.com. This week, Co-op begins its second membership drive while under COVID-19 restrictions. We are so grateful for the support our listeners provided in the fall and proud to be your friendly neighborhood radio station for over 26 years. Our spring membership drive runs from Monday, March 1st through Sunday, March 14th, and donations can currently be safely and quickly made at koop.org. There you'll find the convenient Donate Now button, the new range of thank you gifts, and the always anticipated t-shirt design. And remember, KOOP appreciates every contribution that continues to sustain us all. With your support, we will be there for you. We take you out as we do each week with Land of Naivety. See you next week. Check out the book.